This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. As we go through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' sermon, perhaps the greatest sermon ever preached, was his Sermon on the Mount. And what we've learned so far is that the kingdom of God, what Jesus introduces this idea of the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God, uh, has come in Jesus Christ. And those who come under his rule, uh, those who follow him, experience what he calls the blessed life. He goes through at the beginning and talks about these are the blessings of being part of his kingdom, to being part of a disciple, a follower of Christ. And then what he starts doing is he begins to distinguish what he uh, calls righteousness, true righteousness, with what the religious leaders of his day, largely the Pharisees, call righteousness. And so we're in a section where he is distinguishing kingdom righteousness from the Pharisees' righteousness. Theirs is a skin-deep righteousness that is sort of just concerned with managing external behavior. That's the primary, at least that's the primary result. It's what you do on the outside. But Jesus is saying, no, genuine righteousness is obedience that comes from the inside. It's from a changed heart. The kingdom is made up of changed people, not just new behaviors, but different people. That's what he's talking about. It means to become a new person. And so he's showed how that applies uh, to anger, how it applies to lust, how it applies to the commitment of marriage. And today, uh, we're going to read a section where he shows how kingdom life applies to our speech and specifically to the truthfulness of our speech. So read with me, if you would, Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. This is God's Word. Again, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, For it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So Jesus starts here with with this phrase, "'You have heard it said.'" And he does different things in this section. Sometimes he quotes scripture. Sometimes he sort of paraphrases, puts several scriptures together. Uh, sometimes he quotes something that they're saying that's not even in the Bible. But this time he's saying something that, is, that references scripture. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. Um, th- this comes from Leviticus 19.12. And then he says that you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Uh, That's a paraphrase of Numbers chapter 30. So Jesus is saying, okay, look, you have heard, you are familiar with the reality that God says don't take a false oath. Uh, Don't take a false oath. And you're aware of the the teaching that says don't take a vow and then not fulfill it. 
So he's, he's making a biblical reference here, but then he's going to really address how the Pharisees are applying this truth in the culture of the religious people of Jesus' day. So he takes it to a different level. He says, you've heard, don't swear falsely. You've heard, fulfill your vows. Well, here's what I say, verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. So Jesus takes it to a whole another level. Jesus says, look, you should not swear at all. He, he absolutely forbids oaths. Now, this seems really odd in the context of the scripture that we've been reading because he started out with murder and saying, hey, you know, you think you're okay because you're not physically killing people, but I want to tell you that God looks at the heart and really hating your brother, being angry with your brother is murder. That's a big deal. Then he goes to uh, adultery, and he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I'm saying, if you just look at another person that's married, or if you're married, if you look at another person and you want to have sex with them, you've committed sex- sexual sin in your heart. So like, wow, adultery is big. Last week, we saw he talked about divorce and the convenient ending of marriages. They had a very convenient way of ending their marriages, at least males did in this day, which Jesus is correcting. So now we're talking about oaths, like what you say. How does that compare to these kinds of sins? Well, it really does, and uh, we'll see this as we jump in. So what I'd like to do is really answer three questions in this sermon this morning. First of all, what is an oath? We kind of need to know that. If Jesus forbids something, it might be good to know what he's talking about. Number two, why is he against oaths? And number three, how do we apply this today? So what's an oath? Why is he against it? And how do we apply it today? What is an oath? An oath is to use God's name to guarantee our word. That's the simplest way to think of it. It's the use of God's name generally to sort of add emphasis or seriousness to some type of statement we're making. Uh, It's invoking God's name or even, as we'll see here, invoking a sacred object in order to strengthen a promise. So it's making a promise, but it's more than just making a promise. It's calling on God or on a sacred object as proof that what I am saying is really true. Now, related to an oath is a vow. A vow is a promise to God of an action to be performed. So a vow is saying, God, I promise to do thus and such. An oath and a vow are a bit different. But they're related because he relates them here. He's talking about an oath and a vow and then calls them both oaths. So uh, oath may be a broader term to speak of an oath, uh, technically, which is using God's name or something sacred uh, to give a guarantee of the words I'm saying. That's an oath. A vow is making a promise to God to fulfill something. So these kind of come together under the heading of oaths. And, And when I think about this, I was thinking, you know, oaths aren't that common in our day. In our culture, we're not like really oathy. Uh, we don't do lots of oaths. Um, we think probably the most common oath in our day would be that we're most familiar with would be the oath taken in a court of law. So it's raise your right hand. Maybe it used to be put your hand on a Bible or something, but now it's raise your right hand. You promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. I've watched plenty of court dramas uh, and seen that. So, so you promise to tell the truth with your right hand, a sign of honesty, and then you invoke the name of God, so help you God. So you are, that is an oath. That's literally an oath. 
Uh, another place an oath is taken is when there is a, we use the word, you swear an oath, where there is a swearing in. So the President of the United States is sworn in and takes an oath of office. And in that case, um, the President does place a hand on the Bible and then takes an oath of office. But it's not just the President. Judges take oaths uh, in God's name to fulfill their responsibility. The, the President is defending the Constitution and um, I read a number of judicial oaths this week. I'd never seen one before, but in prep for this. And they're really powerful, that they promise to treat, some of the oaths promise to treat people equally, regardless of whether they're rich or poor. And so it's, a, it's an oath to, bring, to, to act justly, regardless of the uh, person who's being accused or being sued or whatever it is. Uh, military, people are sworn in into the military. So folks who go into the military take an oath. But there's not a lot of other places we take oaths in our culture. Um, there are instances of vows, though. Again, the most common vows are those taken uh, at a wedding. Uh, wedding vows are obviously very common. I've not been to a wedding where there wasn't some type of vow made. Uh, that's where we commit ourselves to faithfulness to a spouse. And we do that before God, in the presence of God, and we do that before others. So that's a, a place we take vows. Um, this summer, uh, in July, we ordained Caleb Wilkinson as a pastor, and he stood up here, and he, we called them vows. He took vows uh, to, be, to faithfully teach God's Word. And we, in turn, made, I don't know if we use the word vows, but congregationally, we made promises back to be supportive. You remember we said, I do. He said, I do. We made promises to support him. Uh, as a minister of the gospel in our midst. Um, but I can only come up with a few instances of oaths and vows in our culture, uh, places that we take God's name um, and, you know, use it as a, as a, in a solemn sense that we are promising. However, in Jesus' day, this was very, very common. It was done regularly, and it became an abused practice, which is what he's addressing in this passage. It had become ridiculous. It had become ridiculous like, uh, like when I was in elementary school. If you crossed your fingers and you made a promise to someone, if you had your fingers crossed, the promise was null and void. And uh, I don't know if that happened at your elementary school, but it did at mine. And so, you know, oh, yeah, well, I said that, but I had my fingers crossed. You didn't, yeah, you didn't, yeah, I had my fingers crossed. Oh, man, yeah, he had his fingers crossed. Yeah, well, we can't hold him, can't hold him to that. Guy crossed his fingers. Yeah, that's legit. So, uh, you know, that, it was almost to that level uh, in Jesus' culture, and that's what he is addressing. So why is Jesus against oaths? Well, the practice of oaths had become a convoluted system uh, in Jesus' day that didn't really promote truth-telling, uh, not unlike the crossed fingers behind the back. It was a practice which was intended to raise the standards of honesty, but in fact, the, the way they practiced vows, it actually devalued honesty. It didn't hold up honesty. Look at Jesus' language here. He speaks of, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, so he speaks of oaths by heaven, uh, by earth, uh, by Jerusalem, or by your head. So he says that the people are taking oaths, and they're calling on various 
uh, not just God, but they're calling on various sacred images or even very natural images like one's head or one's hair to make a promise for an oath. And so people were swearing this way so that they would avoid giving a false oath, which he said, you've heard it said, you can't give a false oath. Well, they were avoiding giving a false oath in God's name because to, to lie using God's name is really bad, like really worse than lying, they thought. So there's lying, and then there's lying in God's name. That's really bad. And so what they did was they took oaths in various ways. That way, if you didn't fulfill your promise, it wasn't the same level of a problem. So, oh yeah, well, I didn't pay you on time. Well, I mean, I didn't swear by God, you know, I swore by Jerusalem, and that's different. So there's a different level of accountability and expectation that would happen there. I swore by the temple. I know I didn't do what I said. I mean, if I had sworn in God's name, for sure I would have paid you. But uh, I swore on the temple, so see me next week or whatever it is. So there was this way where you could swear certain ways that was different than taking an oath in God's name, which upped, amped up the seriousness of the promise. And there was crazy rules by some rabbis. So some rabbis were teaching that if you swore by Jerusalem, it wasn't binding. But if you swore toward Jerusalem, <laughs> that was binding. So you had to watch your language. Did I swear by Jerusalem or toward Jerusalem? If you swore, these very things that Jesus mentions here were common in the culture. If you swore by the temple, it wasn't binding. But if you swore by the temple's gold, it was binding. If you swore by the altar of sacrifice, not binding. But if you swear by the gift on the altar, the animal, I swear by uh, the sheep that's going to be slaughtered. If you do that, that is binding. So there were all kinds of loopholes that didn't require honesty as swearing in God's name would. I mean, we can kind of laugh at the silliness of it all, but I, I think there's similar practices. People who swear, uh, and we use that for like cussing or something. I don't mean swear, swear words like cuss words, but I mean like swear, people who swear a pro- with promises. There are levels in our own culture that people, that people address. So if someone walks in the room and the last piece of, I'll, I'll use not a real serious example, but if somebody walks in and the last piece of cake is gone, it was there before and now it's gone, and I'm standing there. If I say I didn't eat the cake, uh, maybe or maybe not, that's true. You know, hopefully I'm an honest person, but maybe not. But what if I said I promise I didn't eat the cake? Oh, okay, well, that's more serious. What if I said, these are examples, so nobody get upset. I'm not doing this. I'm just giving you examples. Okay, so please, ease up here. I swear I didn't eat the cake. Whoa. Wow, the pastor swore he didn't eat the cake. He must not have eaten the cake. Your, 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 your logic should be, if he's going to that much effort, he probably did eat it. He's, okay, I swore. Or we could take that more seriously. Again, I'm not doing this as an example, so relax. We could swear on something very important. I swear on my mama's grave. I'm not doing that. My mom is dead, but I'm not doing that. I swear on my mama's grave. I didn't eat that cake. Well, okay, that is serious. Or we could go sacred. I swear on a stack of Bibles. I did not eat that cake. 
Okay, this is, now it's holy. Now we're into the holy level that because he said a Bible, and not just a Bible, but like a stack of them. ESVs? ESVs. Yeah, a stack of ESVs. <laughs> or maybe a stack of KJVs. Maybe that would, for some people, that would be a higher oath. So, a stack of Bibles. Or the ultimate would be what, what they, would, they would take very seriously. You know, I swear by God or to God that I did not eat that cake. Or sometimes it could be this, God as my witness, that would be an oath, God as my witness, I didn't eat that cake. So we have ways, if I just said I didn't eat it versus those last couple of examples, we'd say, oh yeah, he amped it way up. That is the most serious truth-telling statement you can make. And Jesus is shutting down that whole system. He's shutting down the whole system Because it's nonsense to think that you can lie because you didn't use God's name when you gave your word. Jesus is saying you can't manipulate God with word games like mama's grave, stack of Bibles, God. uh, You know, you can't pull in these objects or pull in the name of God himself. You can't do that kind of stuff and sort of sort of like now we have to tell the truth. Now we're bound. Whenever we give a promise, whenever we give a word, whenever we make a statement, we're always in his presence. That's what Jesus is saying. You're cannibal all the time. If I say, I will, I won't, I did, I didn't, whatever I say like that, I'm accountable to be truthful. What I'm saying comes before God. I am before his presence. We don't need to call God as my witness because God is always your witness. That's the point. He, we don't have to invoke the name of God to say that we're telling the truth. God is right there listening always to what we say and what we do. He is always a witness. And we are always accountable for our speech, regardless of whether we use extra statements of an oath like I just gave to you to sort of make it more serious. Secondly, I think what Jesus is doing here that he's opposing, first of all, we're always before God. That's the first idea. But secondly, he's doing something else. I think Jesus is shattering a sort of sacred and secular distinction here. He's going after a mindset that says there's certain things that are really spiritual and holy, and there's certain things, you know, that aren't. So if I use God's name when I'm making a statement, now that's spiritual, that's holy, that's godly, that matters. But if I'm just over here saying, I'll get it to you by next Tuesday, I didn't use God's name. That's just like regular life. That's not like lying. We do that. Like, well, I wouldn't lie down at church or, you know, I wouldn't, man, I wouldn't lie to somebody in church, but go out here and, yeah, because it's different, right? If I'm lying at church, that's really bad. If I'm lying at work, well, I mean, that's just kind of what people do. He said, no, you can't divide things up that way. Uh, In reality, God is concerned with everything. Look at how Jesus dismantles this whole idea of sacred secular. He says to you, don't take an oath, verse 34, um, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven. Okay, don't say, well, I didn't swear by God, I swore by heaven. Well, what does he say? Look, that's the throne of God. You can't separate God from things. Like, okay, I just said the throne. No, that, I just said heaven, I'm sorry, that's his throne. Don't swear by earth. So he's saying, well, that's not spiritual. I just said by the dirt of the ground, I promise, or something like this, okay? The earth is his footstool. 
He is ruling and reigning over the earth. He is present in the earth. That's what he's saying. You can't, you can't separate God from all of this kind of... You can't separate God from your speech. I, I, I By Jerusalem. I didn't say by God. I said by Jerusalem. Well, that's, that's his city. That's the city of the king. Okay, okay. What about my head? So, you know, I swore by my head. He says, do not take an oath by your head, verse 36, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Some ladies in the congregation going, oh, yeah, I can. <laughs> I read that early in the church life, some people taught this, this was a, uh, a, a, a this, this statement of Jesus forbid hair dye. Uh, man, if we ever go that legalistic, we're going to lose like half the folks in our church over 40. Go find a grace church because this one done got legalistic, no hair dye. But what he's saying is, you can't, the hairs of your head are numbered, but you can't even control when a dark hair turns white. He's given a picture of aging. You can't even control how that happens. You're not in charge, even of your own hair. God owns your hair. He'll turn it white when he wants. He'll cause it to fall out when he wants. God owns you. The hairs of your head are numbered. So even if you do something like my hair, you're, you're, God's connected to that. You don't have this certain way of living where certain things are like secular. Oh, that's my hair. I can say whatever I want. And then certain things are spiritual. Wow, he used the name of God. He's saying all of life is lived before God. This is the idea of the kingdom that he's This is the bigger picture that the kingdom life is integrated. All of life is under the king. You come into the kingdom to be a disciple of Jesus, just check your secular baggage at the door because it's all sacred at this point. It's all lived for him. And he calls us to an integrated life that's not, all for, not only all for him, but the integration of heart and action. That's, a big, that's probably the bigger point here but throughout this, throughout this uh, sermon because throughout he's saying, look, uh, it's not just what you do externally, it's what's in your heart that matters. So integrated. The Pharisees, listen, he's saying to the Pharisees, you can't keep squeaky clean on the outside and be okay because God judges your heart. You can't speak some promises in his name that count and some promises not in his name that don't count. In the kingdom, all of life is for Jesus. All speech matters. All words count, not just oaths. Matter of fact, Jesus says at one point, we'll give an account for every careless word. He doesn't say, you know, if, you know we're grading on the curve in general speech, but if you give an oath, that's 100% judgment. <laughs> It's like, hey, even if it's a careless word, you give an account for it, he says. So Jesus makes this very clear. There's a bigger principle here about the kingdom, that it's not religious behavior. It's all of life, and that's what the Pharisees aren't getting, and that's what Jesus is teaching here. So how do we apply this? I mean, this would be like the simplest application ever. ever. Tell the truth. <laughs> Tell the truth. Jesus is teaching his disciples that kingdom speech is truthful speech. And that it's truthful speech in all of life, not just because we've taken an oath, but because to be truthful is, is to recognize that we serve a Lord who is the truth. The king, he is the king of truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. There's nothing deceitful about him. No deceitful word was ever spoken by him. He is truth incarnate, we could say, at this time of the year. And so when we are in his kingdom, under his rule, and when he lives inside of us by the Spirit, he is transforming us to become more and more truthful 
to be truth tellers, truth speakers. That's the kind of king he is. And his spirit is in us so that he will, the fruit of the spirit is always to yield truthful speech, which comes from a truthful heart. If we feel like we need to add credibility to what we say, that's what they were doing. I need to add credibility to show this is really the truth. If we need to do that, we have a problem. We aren't really truthful people. One, one scholar said, oaths arise because men are so often liars. Women too. He meant people. Oaths, why do we have oaths? Because people lie. Why do we have contracts? Because people lie. And they don't fulfill what they say they will do. See, it should be concerning when we have to say, I promise. That's a red flag. I, I was um, interacting the other day at the counter, uh, at, at dealing with uh, someone who worked at the counter at an automotive place. Automotive repair on my car. And I'm very suspect. This I'm just putting it out there. I'm telling myself, this is, I don't want to slander anybody. But they know stuff I don't know, and I'm always suspect. If you know stuff I don't know, and you just tell me how much it costs, I don't know, you know? And so, so this guy, I was listening to him talk to me. This is what he said to me. This is what he said to me. He's talking to me. He says, well, I'm going to be honest with you. He said, I'm going to be honest with you. I think, okay, what have you been the previous three minutes? Because this makes me very nervous. I'm going to be honest with you. So he is honest with me. And tells me something. And then I ask him another question. Well, how common is that? Is this a common problem? Well, to tell you the truth, he's just punctuating all his sentences with normally I'm a dirty liar. But right now for you at this moment, if you buy right now, I'm going to tell you the truth, son. This is concerning. Well, it's just a figure of speech. Maybe, maybe, could be, but probably not. Probably not. I have to let you know I'm being honest because maybe you don't believe me. It made me think he's not normally a very trustworthy person if all the sentences are punctuated to tell you the truth. I'm going to be honest with you. Going on like that. See, that's why Jesus says, just give a simple 37, verse 37, just give a simple yes or no. That's all you need to do. Just speak truthfully, yes or no. Kingdom people can be trusted, Jesus says kingdom people can be relied upon because like Jesus we are people who transformed by Christ empowered by his spirit changed by his word tell the truth in the book on the sermon on the mount it's really a good one that we have out on the resource center we have some more copies still I was just thinking how good this section in particular is very good um, in Daniel Doriani's book about the sermon on the mount uh, he he talks to parents under this section Shouldn't we talk to, be talking about the kids? We're talking about lying? No, he goes to the parents. I don't even think he mentions the kids. He, he tells an example of a parent who says to his kid, hey, if you'll help me work in the yard today, I'll take you for ice cream tomorrow. And the kid says, do you promise? Doriani writes, the request for a promise is a testimony against us. He says, in the past, the parent said he would do something like get ice cream, and obviously didn't. And so now the child was requiring a promise. Probably what happened was when the kid pointed out, hey, we never got that ice cream, dad probably just said, well, I forgot. 
Or dad said, well, something came up. Or worst of all, dad said, well, you should have reminded me to keep my word. The child learns, Doriani says, that the child needs to seek a guarantee from the parent because the parent, on a somewhat regular basis, doesn't do what he or she says he will do. What the child is asking, he says, is, can I count on you? What the child is asking is, do you mean it this time? He says, ideally, we would hope it never occurs to our child to ask for a guarantee. Never occurs to ask for a guarantee because what we say is what we do. When I hear that illustration, I realize it's hard to tell the truth. So let's go, I'm, I'm honest, man. I'm honest as the day is long. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not a liar. It's hard to tell the truth. When is truth-telling difficult for you? Maybe it's that random little statement made out there that lodges in the heart of a kid who's got hope that we'll do what we say. Maybe it's something far more serious than ice cream in exchange for yard work. Some of us live in a weave, uh, have weaved a life of deception around us. We've seriously deceived our spouse, which we appropriately did take vows to, but maybe there's a deep deception there that we are living, the lies are piling up, and we are managing them, just seeking to manage them. And we wish we could go back and obey verse 37. Just let your yes be yes or your no be. Just, Just tell the truth. Or maybe we've lied to a boss. Maybe our work situation, if they ever find out, like we're carrying this thing all the time. We walk into work every day with this backpack filled with the bricks of our lies, our deception, our false impression that we left of what we did or didn't do. And we just kind of walk around carrying that burden of deception, wondering, is the boss ever going to come in, unzip our backpack, and look and see what's really there? Those are big, big deceptions. There's young people in the room that have deceived their parents, not once or twice, or say, yeah, I turned that assignment in here or there, but significant life deception. You're not a Christian, but you've never told your parents that, and you're not walking with him, but in their eyes, when they're around, you are. So we all have these kinds of things where we can be deceptive. If you've got a pile of lies that have you not made your yes, yes, your no, no, uh, the king of truth comes and he calls you to trust him and to repent, to tell yourself the truth, to tell him the truth and to confess, and to tell the person you've deceived the truth. The Lord's looking to take that weight off your back. The Lord's looking to restore those relationships to be better than they ever have been, to cause you to walk in the light. The Lord is calling you, truth sets free. The truth of the gospel is what sets us free. But when we embrace the truth of the gospel and repentance for our sins, there is a freedom. The Lord wants you to be free. That's why this is the good life. These aren't hard rules. Jesus isn't saying, yeah, I'm going to tell you, you better be honest from your heart. Wow, that's a heavy burden. No, he's saying, I'm going to tell you how to live free. This is the good life, Jesus says. 
Let your yes be yes. You know, we know all of life live for the glory of God. Forgiveness when we sin, power to change, reconciled relationships through honesty. Jesus is saying this is the blessed life. He's not adding burdens. He's taking Pharisees' burdens off, which say, what did I swear by? Do I have to get that to them? Do I have to fulfill that promise? What are, he's saying, forget all that. Just be free to say, my word is my word. Lord, help others trust my word. It can be hard to tell the truth. So for others of us, maybe we're not living a life of deception, but we're dishonest in careless ways. We exaggerate. We make the event sound better than it was. Dude, you should have been there. That was the best and we all know we sat in the event and go, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> Dude, it was so amazing. You should have been there. Make it sound amazing. Why? Because we have to have an amazing experience that someone else didn't have. We give a time estimate to a potential client. Oh, we can get that to you in 30 days. And we know for a fact we can't get it to them in 30 days. But if I say 30 days, I've got, t- I've got a month to manage that and explain why it's not going to be delivered on time. We say we'll be there at 10 a.m. for the meeting, but we aren't. Now, things happen. There's unexpected traffic. Get a flat tire. An emergency comes up on the way that you had to tend to, or something came up with your child. It it really, you gave yourself time. You planned. Everything would have worked. Okay, there are those exceptions. But I'm not talking about an exception. I'm talking about a rule. I'm talking about a lifestyle. I'll be there at 10. Well, I just roll a little late. No, I lie. I, I, I repeatedly deceive people, prefer myself. My time's more valuable than yours. And I say I'll be there, and I'm not. The Lord, that, that can seem so careless, but can someone take my word and trust it? I should have looked at my calendar before. Guaranteed, this week, I will be late to an appointment because of that illustration. Guaranteed. And someone will look at me and go, oh. <laughs> Have you heard the podcast this week? <laughs> the biggest Christian deception of all is I'll pray for you. How about that one? I'll pray for you. Oh, I forgot. I forgot. I'll tell you how deceptive I've been. I tell somebody I'll pray for them. I don't pray for them for all the week. I see them Sunday morning. They're across the room. Oh, no, they're walking to me. Lord, would you please heal Joe's uh, toe, whatever it was we were praying about. Would you please? Hey, I prayed for you like 10 seconds ago when I saw you. That is the exact thing he's talking about here. Was that by heaven or by earth or by your hair? How, how was that promise? Sometimes it's just small things. They sound small, but they're discipleship issues because kingdom discipleship means fundamentally, we do what we say. Fundamentally, we're, God's shaping us into being trustworthy people. Fundamentally, God's calling us to be faithful. Fundamentally, kingdom people can be counted on. This is why people took oaths, and this is why people take oaths, and this is why people sign contracts, because we don't do what we say we will do, when we will do it, or how we will do it. But as a Christian, we want to be those who others would say, they will do what they say. As a Christian in business, you want to be the person that the, on the other end they say, hey, we got to have some paperwork. It's just paperwork, but I wouldn't even require a contract of you because I've worked for you for years and you've always done what you've said. We don't even need a contract. Maybe our, our corporate office requires it, so I'm going to do it. But I trust you. That's the kind of people we want to be. Instead of, well, he said 10. That means always 10, 15 at best. Or he said they'll deli- it's deliverable in, in, a, in a week, but give it a month. 
That's what I'm expecting. Or he said it was the greatest event ever. I'm not even sure he went to it. So we don't want to be <laughs> that kind of person. Clients know that we'll do what we say. Kingdom speech is truthful speech which undergirds a life of faithfulness, a life which has been changed by the king. Here's the good news. The king has come to rescue us from untruth. Jesus shows up, and he is absolutely true. Everything he says is true, and he comes to ultimately forgive our deceit and to transform us into a people of truth. He is a king unlike any king ever. Our tolerance for deception is so high. This is how it works in our political system, Democrat or Republican. When a political leader gets up to give a speech, here's what we have. We have the news that have hired fact checkers who come at the end of the speech and say, well, there was six blatant lies in what he just said, and there was four things that we can't confirm, and there's three things. There's no record of it anywhere on the Internet, so I have no idea where he got that. And we just go, oh, yeah, the fact checker said, well, it was mostly true. Our, our, our tolerance for political leaders is they're going to lie, and that's just the way it is. Well, we just got to vote for somebody. Lesser of two evils, nobody's honest, right? Jesus comes and shatters that. There's no fact checkers for Jesus. What he says is absolutely true. What he promises, he will fulfill. It's a different sort of rulership. He comes in truth. And if we go back to the beginning, we see that from the beginning, there's a battle between deception and truth. In Genesis 3, it is the serpent, it is Satan that comes to Eve and and lies, says, if you eat of the fruit, you will be like God. That is a lie. That's why John says of Satan in John 8, he is the father of lies. He was a liar from the beginning. So there is the battle of lies and truth in the garden. And then there is God saying just after that that he will send one that will crush the serpent's head. And Jesus is speaking. The serpent crusher is speaking right here. That's truth. That's a fulfilled promise. He comes to Abraham and says, I'll make you a great nation. And from you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That's what's happening in Jesus Christ. God told the truth to Abraham. John the Baptist has just shown up before Jesus here. If we followed a traditional Advent calendar today, I think is John the Baptist Sunday, where the sermons are on John the Baptist. And John the Baptist comes and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was truth. He spoke and pointed to Jesus and said, this guy's going to forgive sins. That's the truth. So in, in, when the way God functions is he makes a promise and he fulfills it. He makes a claim and it's accurate. And we see the coming of Jesus as the fulfillment of truth throughout the ages. We opened with a call to worship from Isaiah 9. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. You know, the, the government shall be on his shoulder, we read. It was a promise from Isaiah that Jesus would come. The truth. And where Jesus comes, where Adam and Eve believed a lie, where where we have been deceptive, he comes to shine light in darkness. He comes to bring a kingdom to earth so that it will be as earth as it is in heaven. He speaks the truth, and ultimately it cost him his life. 
when he claims to be God, he's telling the truth, and it cost him his life. And yet in his death and resurrection, he brings grace and forgiveness for people who don't tell the truth, people who fudge the truth to, to be in our favor, people who sort of give the impression, leave people with an impression that I'm this when I'm really that. Those are the kind of people, you and me, that he dies for, that he bears our sins, that he's resurrected. Uh, In truth, he promised, he promised, I will be resurrected in three days. That's what he said in the Gospel of John. And he will come back to bring a new heaven and a new earth. That is his promise, where he will reign, where he will reign over all. There will be absolute truth. There will be no darkness. There will be all light. And in the meantime, the church is to be an outpost of the truth. The church should be the place, the one place you can come and meet truth tellers. The one place you can go where where what is said is what actually takes place. Where promises are kept. And when they're not, there is forgiveness. And they're asking forgiveness and repentance. We're to represent the king as those who speak the truth without deceit. He comes to deliver us from deception and make us a people of truth. How does this apply to us today? Well, if you've never believed in Jesus, you have believed a lie. You've either believed there is no God or you've believed there is a God, but I can be good enough to be accepted by him by my actions. So if you've never trusted Christ, I'd call you to the truth today, to come out of the deception and to believe the truth that God loves you, that he gave his life for you in Jesus Christ, that he will welcome you as you are as a repentant sinner coming to him and asking for his forgiveness. And he'll give you new life and give you the power to tell the truth. If you're already a Christian, then the question for me and for you is, where is God calling me to a more truthful way of life? Where is he calling me to integrity? Where is he calling me to kingdom integrity? in life. What does that look like? There's a lot of ways. Maybe you need to have a conversation with your parents or with your spouse or with your friends. Are there ways you represent yourself that aren't true? Maybe it's your community group or your community group leader or friend. Maybe you're like, okay, this is how I act at church, but okay, this is how I am in real life. Jesus obliterates that. There's one way of life all before the face of the king. So let's integrate our worlds and say, this is who I am. And and receive the freedom that comes from that. Maybe it's your social media. Maybe you're just consumed, enslaved with offering an edited version of who you are. Of course it's edited. It's always edited. We can't put everything out there. And I'm not advocating you put all your worst thoughts out there. But I am saying, if if we are managing creating an image for others to think of us. Man, that is enslavement. That is a burden. God wants to free you and say, this is the truth. I don't have to impress. I'm loved by God. How how can I impress? I don't need to impress anybody. There's a freedom that comes in that. Maybe you need to speak truthfully to someone out of love and tell them truth, but you're afraid to do so. They may take it the wrong way. It may hinder the relationship. Maybe God's calling you to to not be fearful, but to tell the truth. So it could be careless speech. It could be fearful to speak what we should. Maybe we need to give a testimony of Christ to someone. God's calling you to stand up and say, maybe that's it. Sometimes we're afraid to speak the truth. 
But Jesus is the truth. And he comes as king of truth to set us free, to forgive our deceptions, and to empower us to be people of truth. He, that's what he does. And we don't have to hide in the darkness. We, we are safe coming in his light to be forgiven, to be changed, to be reconciled where that is need, needed. He's made us a people of truth. That's why he says you're a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. If we're just like the culture and our practices are just as acceptable, if we're, just, if we're celebrating deception in political life, we're celebrating that, excusing that, then we're not a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. We're in a valley of darkness is where we are. If our business practices are not distinct from other businesses, if our integrity in the workplace is not different from our coworkers, if we're not dealing with our neighbors and our family members honestly, if we're not truthful around our fellow friends at church, then we're not a city set on a hill, but God has come to make us a city set on a hill in truth by his grace. Let's ask for his help. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.